If you will, turn in your bulletins, or even better yet, if you have your Bible with you, turn in your Bibles to Philippians 4. You might have guessed already, our theme of the service has been contentment. What does that mean? What does that look like? I think and I hope that by the end of this sermon, you will see that contentment is one of the most powerful gifts, one of the most powerful characteristics that a Christian can have in this world. Philippians 4 is written by a man by the name of Paul, and he writes this letter to his friends in Philippi while he sits in a nasty, dirty prison. He has just received a gift from the Philippian people. And this is what he says. Hear the word of the Lord from Philippians 4, verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. I know how to be brought low. Situation, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And I can do all things through him who strengthens me. As we come to the word now, let's pray and ask the Lord to open it up for us. Father God, Even this morning, we feel it in our hearts. There is a restlessness. And Lord, we know that we can only find true rest when we rest in you. So Holy Spirit, descend on this place. Holy Spirit, be in our hearts. Holy Spirit, open up our eyes to see what you have for us this morning. It's going to be very easy as we talk about contentment to think about all those people in our life who are discontent. So, Lord, boy, I wish they were here. But, Lord, you've got us here. And you've got something for us. So, Lord, make the word alive to us and change us to be a content people in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. One of my favorite authors, I maybe have talked about this before here, but uh, one of my favorite authors, his name is Wendell Berry. And Wendell uh, Berry was a journalist, and he was a professor for many years, and then he ended up in a little rural town in Kentucky, and he writes basic Americana books and articles. Uh, One of his most famous book series is about a fictional people that live in a fictional town called Port William. This little farming community is close-knit, intertwined marriages, and they are connected deeply by the land that they live on and farm. They are what Barry calls stickers. Stickers are people who love a place. They love everything about it. They love the food it produces. They love the culture that's there. They love the traditions and the plants. They love the people. Barry says stickers are a people placed. They are happy, content, and satisfied. Satisfied and content, that is all, that is what we all want, right? We want to be stickers, people who are placed. It's a part of our vision as a church. People that are satisfied, people that are content. In fact, if you're a Christian, you are basically called stickers by God. Throughout the Bible, 
God keeps telling his people that they are a people placed in a land to love that land, to take care of the city that they live in, and to be light to those all around them, and to find joy wherever they live. In 2012, Barry gave a speech at a university and talked about these two types of people, stickers and boomers. Not like, okay, boomer, not that kind of boomer, something different. Boomers are opportunistic. They're always looking for the next thing that can bring them happiness. They are people who look around and are never happy. They're always looking for more, more money, more success. They are discontent. They are unsatisfied. And they're always looking for greener grass. I like to think that most of us want to be stickers, right? We want to be content and satisfied people, but we have a tendency to be boomers. If you're honest, you want more. You might not look like the cutthroat businessman or the conniving entrepreneur, but many times we have a low-grade fever of discontentment. We want something more in this life. We think this world has got something more for us. We are unhappy with our careers. We're unhappy with the friends we have. We're unhappy with the car we drive or the house we live in or the clothes we wear. We believe that next weekend, yes, that's the weekend that I'm going to get real rest. We believe next year's vacation that we're saving for and we're planning for and we're talking about, that's going to be the vacation of a lifetime. Our discontentment is fed continually by everything around us, and we desperately want to be content. We desperately want to be stickers, even though many of us are boomers. This is where Paul helps us. He tells us in this passage that contentment is obtainable, but it's a secret that has to be learned. I want to define contentment for you. The definition I've come up with is taken from three different places. It's been taken from the Bible. It's been taken from a guy named Jeremiah Burroughs, who is a dead Puritan. It's always safe to quote dead people. Uh, Puritan, for you kids, Puritans were pilgrims. They looked just like those pilgrims with the big hats and the big shoes, big belt buckles. And the third person was Andrew Davis. Andrew Davis is alive. He's a pastor out in the Midwest. And in his book, Power, The Power of Christian Contentment, which I read over this past week, was given to me by a friend, really helped me formulate this definition of contentment. Here's my definition of contentment. Contentment is the supernatural power to submit and delight in everything God gives you. Contentment is the supernatural power to submit and delight in everything God gives you. This definition is both passive and active because Paul says in this passage we just read that contentment is a secret and it is choosing to accept what God has given us and then responding active in joy to what God has given us. Contentment is both submitting to the situation and choosing 
to delight in the situation. True contentment also recognizes that everything comes from the hand of God. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And Paul believes that God only gives good things to his children, to those that love him and according to his purpose. But Paul also says that submitting and delighting in everything that God gives us, it's supernatural. It can't be something that we conjure up within us. It has to come from an outside source. And this is why he ends this passage with saying, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He is saying that true contentment comes from Christ. Contentment is the supernatural power to submit and delight in everything God gives you. Today we're going to look at two things. How do you get contentment and what does it do? Before I get into how we get contentment, Andrew Davis makes a very important point which I think you need to hear, I need to hear, and it's this. Not everybody has contentment. He uses this illustration. When people join the army, they get the basics, right? When you join the army, you get boots, you get your uniform, you get a backpack, hopefully you get a gun. But there's certain things you do not get when you join the army. You don't get experience in battle, you don't get strategy in battle. You don't get discipline to fight. These are things that you have to learn over time. It is the same with being a Christian. When you become a Christian, you instantly receive faith so that you can believe in Jesus Christ. You instantly are adopted into God's family. You instantly get eternal life. You instantly get the Holy Spirit. But there are many things you do not get instantly. There are many things that as a Christian you must learn. Contentment is one of those things. So, how do we get it? How do we learn it? In three ways. Experience, suffering, and reordering. We get contentment by experience, by suffering, and by reordering. Experience. Paul uses this phrase, I've learned the secret of contentment. You know, learning comes from experience, right? You kids know this. You're in school. You're experiencing. Every day there's a new math problem. There's a new vocabulary word. You're experiencing something new every day. Paul's life was one big lesson of contentment. As I said, the backstory to this letter is that Paul is sitting in a prison. Friends of ours went to Rome and they, they saw some prisons that maybe were prisons that Paul had been in or at least like that. And basically, it was like a hole in the floor that went down into this cave and they would lower prisoners down there. And so the only light they would get is just a shaft of light from this hole and then everything else was dark and they would be there for months. For Paul... He, this was not the first time he'd been put in prison. Here's a little backstory to Paul's life. It comes from 2 Corinthians 11. If you have your Bible and you want to turn there, it's a great place to kind of put your eyes. 2 Corinthians 11, 
25 through 28. This is what Paul says. This is Paul recounting his experience in life. He says this. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This is Paul's life, right? Could you say any of these things? Paul's experience taught him that this world was never going to satisfy him. And Paul learned from his experience who was going to satisfy him. The very beginning of the letter to Philippians, Paul says this in Philippians 1.21. He says, for me to live is Christ. And listen to this. He says, for me to die is gain. Because of his experience with suffering and pain, rejection and persecution, all because of what he believed about Jesus, he learns what it means to be content. In order to do that, though, he had to better understand the purpose of suffering. How do you get contentment? One, through life and life's experience. Two, understanding suffering. Suffering is the key to learning the secret of contentment. I'd reckon to say that many of you were like me on Thursday afternoon, right? We just finished a huge meal. We had turkey, we had pie, you had whatever your favorite stuff was. You're sitting in your favorite chair, and perhaps you would think to yourself, I'm pretty content. It's easy to be content when we have all the things that we want. Again, Philippians, Philippians 3 this time. If you have your Bibles, turn there, put your eyes on that. In Philippians 3, Paul gives a list of his accomplishments, all the things that he has, all of his achievements and his accolades. For all intensive purposes, Paul was the man. He didn't fear anyone, he says. He was a super Jew. He had great pedigree. He came from a good family. He was well-educated. And he said, this is what he said, I was blameless when it came to the law. He had a good life and a bright future. But then he met someone that changed everything. He met Jesus And Jesus shook him to the core and showed him what really matters. That's why in Philippians 3, 7, he says this, But whatever gain I have, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul's experience in his life started to shape how he saw suffering. 
and how he sees that suffering the loss of everything actually means he gains everything. Later on in Philippians 3, he says, there's three things I want to know. I want to know the righteousness of Christ. I want to know how to live right with God. I want to know the power of the resurrection. I want to know what it looks like to live a new life. And then the third thing he says is, I want to share with Christ in his suffering. Because he knows that in his suffering, he will have new life. Paul's contentment comes from his experience with Jesus. The experience of suffering with Jesus. Because he sees that it is worth more than this world and all that it has to offer. Contentment, if you really want to be a content person, comes from experience with Jesus that shapes suffering and reorients or reorders our love. That's the third thing. How do you get contentment? Through experience in your life, through understanding the role of suffering and how experience and suffering reorders love. In all of your experiences, all of your suffering, all of your disappointments and dissatisfaction, the question is, how is God reordering the love in your life? At the core of contentment is ordered love. So, what is the order of your love? What do you love? What are the things that are most important to you? Well, I can tell you what, are, what is most important to you and the order of your love because I can tell you what, if I ask you what makes you angry when it's taken away, that shows the order of love in your heart. When your plans are ruined, what is your response? How do you view your bank account? How do you view your schedule, your time? What are the desires of your heart? You know, I think Thanksgiving and Christmas, this is a fantastic time, right? Because Thanksgiving to Christmas exposes the order of our heart, the order of our love. We go from Thursday, right? Like Thursday, uh, we sit around the table and we're like, okay, guys, let's go around the table. What are we thankful for? You know, and everybody's saying what they're thankful for. I'm thankful for family. We're writing down all of that. You know. And then by the end of Thanksgiving Day, we're writing down all of the things we want for Christmas, right? Thanksgiving is this time of gratitude, which quickly rolls into a time of give me. I find my own heart so disordered, which leads to a discontentment. So what is the first step in reordering your love and learning contentment? Psalm 37.4. I encourage you to memorize this verse. It's delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight. This is how we start to reorder the loves in our life. This is where we find true contentment. Delight is a command by God. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Delight in God. Seek and your, run after him. Enjoy him. Delighting in God is your job. And God's job is to allure you. His job is to woo you. 
God's job is to woo your heart, to change and reorder your love, and to satisfy you, and to give you the desires of your heart. Andrew Davis says this about Psalm 37. He says, when I first read this, it became a treasured verse that I believe to mean, if I love Jesus, then he will give me everything I want. This verse morphed subtly into this. Take delight in the Lord and he will assign me what I should want. Then it finally became, take delight in Christ and he will become my heart's desire. And he will satisfy it more richly than we can ask or think. My friends, contentment is the reordering of our love by God himself. Coming to you and satisfying you. That is why contentment is a supernatural power to submit and delight in whatever God gives you. This is why Paul ends this section, this, the, the passage that we read with, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Because who's in him? It is Christ in him, causing him in all of his experience and all of his suffering to reorder the love of his life so that he can be content. So, that is how you get contentment. What does contentment do? Quickly, four things contentment does. Contentment first liberates us from the world's traps. I want you to listen to this verse. It's 1 Timothy 6, 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if you have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now listen. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. My friends, when you have learned the secret of contentment, then you are free from the snares of this world, from senseless and harmful desires, from destruction and the pain that this world gives. What are some of the snares that kill contentment? Two snares that kill contentment. The first is comparison. Cam prayed this in his prayer. Comparison is a killer of contentment. This is all too evident in our life, isn't it? We used to call it keeping up with the Joneses. Now we call it Instagram. Right? At our fingertips, we have technology, which is such a blessing to us. Technology is amazing. It also, though, feeds this discontentment. As you start scrolling through people's sound bites, right? They could have had the worst day ever, but they took a picture of them and their kid eating an ice cream right before the ice cream fell off or right before this kid, you know, blows up and starts screaming. They take this picture and it's like, great day at the park eating ice cream, right? We have these sound bites of people's lives. We see them on vacations that we wish we could go on in houses that we wish we owned 
wearing clothes that we wish we fit into, looking perfect, sounding perfect, acting perfect. And I don't know, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just me. But it makes me feel worse and worse about my body and about my family and about my life. Just a challenge. Consider, just consider, I asked my kids this this week, just consider how technology has led you to be discontent with God, with what he's given to you. How it has led you to compare and then grumble against all the things God has given. Just consider. A second killer of contentment is entitlement. Phrases like this. These are all phrases I said this week. I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe they are doing this to me. I can't believe that God would let this happen. Do you know the word myopic? Does that word mean anything to you? Myopic? Myopic means nearsighted. When a person is myopic, they can only see themselves. Paul in this passage shows us what contentment does. It starts with thanking the Philippians. See what he says? Verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Contentment lifts up our heads from looking at our situation and allows us to look around, to be grateful. You know, that's what happened in the Eden, in Eden, right? That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were, were tricked. They were deceived. They said, God isn't enough for you. And what happened? They took that fruit, they ate it, and then where did their eyes go? They went down. Ah, we're naked. Their heads went down. Shame. And then their hands went down and they made fig leaves into clothes. Contentment reverses that. And we see this on the cross. Where Christ hangs there. Bloodied and murdered. And with his head hanging low, he lifts up his eyes and looks at the people and says, God, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's thinking about you with his hands stretched out. Contentment liberates us from the snares of this world, the traps of this world. The supernatural power of contentment liberates us from the entrapments of the world, of comparison and entitlement, and allows us to lift up our heads and our hearts and our hands to submit to God's plan and delight in what he has done for us. Second thing that, commit, that contentment does, it, gives us, it gets us ready to receive God's blessings. James 4, 6 says this, God resists the proud, but he shows grace to the humble. Humility comes from contentment. Those who submit and delight in God's plans are humble. When that happens, you are ready to receive God's blessings of grace. Contentment gets us ready to receive God's grace. Jeremiah Burroughs says this, though. When we are discontent, we are unsteady. Right? When we're discontent, we're shaking. We're nervous. We're over here. We're over there. We're like a glass being moved around while someone's trying to pour water. 
Andrew Davis puts it this way, which is, I think is a hilarious way. In fact, I looked up the video. It is a hilarious video. There's a man, and he's holding onto a jackhammer, and he's like getting all thrown around on this jackhammer, and then somebody hands him a bottle of water to drink, right? Where do you think that water goes? I mean, it's going everywhere, right? But that is what it's like when we are discontent, when we are anxious and worrying, when we are continually being violently shaken by our discontentment in our situation, when we're trying to compare ourselves with other people or we're wondering why God is doing this to us, we are shaken. We are restless. Psalm 46 is a way for us to steady ourselves. Psalm 46 talks about how God is a fortress for us. He's solid and he's immovable and he's steadfast. And then in Psalm 46 verse 10, he says this, Be still and know that I am God. The way we do that, the psalmist says, is beholding what God has done for you. Take inventory when you are discontent. Write down things that you are thankful for. There's a book called 10,000 Blessings, I think. That's what it's called. And Amber uh, read the book, and then she has been writing for years. She's been writing every day a blessing in that book. Something she is thankful for. And when we look at the cross, we look at what Christ has done for us that quiets our restless hearts. The question I've been asking myself this week when I am feeling discontent is this. Has Christ crucified and risen for me? Is that enough to make me content? Or does he need to do more? Is Christ crucified and risen enough to make you content? Or do you need more? When we turn back to Christ in our discontentment, when we rest and are still before God, we become a powerful witness to those around us. That's the third thing that, com- that contentment does. It's a powerful witness to those around us. You know, the people of Philippi, the people that Paul is writing to, they would have known about Paul's contentment because something amazing happened when Paul came to town. When Paul came to Philippi, there were no Christians in that town. And as he was preaching about Jesus, people started becoming saved. And as he was walking around and and doing his ministry, this girl started following him. This girl was a slave girl, and she was possessed by a demon. And this demon gave her the power to tell the future, a fortune teller. And the owner of this slave girl made a lot of money off of her. Well, this little girl started following around Paul. And started harassing him. And Paul got so fed up with this demon that he turns around and he casts the demon out. Immediately when that happens, the girl loses her power to tell the future. And that means her owner loses all of his money. And so this man is angry with Paul and with Paul's friend Silas. And so he makes up some lies about him and gets him thrown in prison. Paul and Silas are locked in this prison, and the way that they're locked in there is that their feet are locked. And so they have to sit in their own filth 
for hours and hours in this disgusting, dark prison. And so what do Paul and Silas do? Well, they call their lawyer. Why wouldn't they, right? No. Paul and Silas start to pray and sing to God. They start to praise God for who he is and what he's done. And around midnight, as all the other prisoners are listening to Paul and Silas, there's this earthquake that shakes the place so violently that their shackles pop off and their doors fling open. And the jailer who is there is so terrified because he assumes everyone has left, he draws his sword to kill himself. And Paul says, hey, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. The jailer was flabbergasted. And so he went to Paul and Silas and said, sir, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your whole household will be saved. You see, Paul's contentment, this supernatural power to submit and delight in whatever God gives him, allows him to stay in that stinking prison in order to be a witness for the sake of Christ. Contentment, I want, to hear, I want you to hear this. Contentment is an active delight that brings with it a rest that your friends, your neighbors, they long to have. And when they see it, they will want to know how to get it. Here's where this, this challenged me. What is the gospel that I preach here and what is the gospel that I live at home with my children? I have a pastor friend who interviewed his children at 18 when they left house. And he said, hey, what did you learn during your time in my home? And he said, the first one said this, dad, you say to trust God and then you do it all yourself. And that's when he knew he had failed. All too often, I preach a gospel that I do not live. Even this sermon is so convicting to me. What do my children see in me? Do they see Christ in me? Do they see a man who is content or a man who is discontent? When I get frustrated and I get angry at situations that don't go my way, how many times do I turn things back to me instead of turning them to Christ? The challenge is for you as well. Contentment is a supernatural power that turns you into a supernatural witness. But contentment is impossible if we do it by ourselves. And here's our fourth and final thing of what contentment does. Contentment connects us with Jesus because we can't do it ourselves. The supernatural power to submit and delight in everything God gives you comes from Jesus. Jesus says in John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, abide means live, dwell with, be connected to. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. My friends, the secret 
to living a content life is being connected to Jesus by looking to him as the author and the perfecter of your faith, resting in what he has done for you on that cross, and then delighting in what he has done in all the situations that he names. Christ is working something better for you. And as we abide in him, we see how he is content. Philippians 2.6 says this, Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to grasp, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. My friends, Christ's contentment was the supernatural power to submit and delight in the Father's plan. And the Father's plan was that he would die for you and for me. My friends, are you discontent this morning? Are you searching for contentment, but it seems to be elusive and hiding and unattainable? My friends, come once again to Christian See how he can bring that contentment that you long for. Christian, have you grown grumbling? Have you started to grumble in your life? Are you not content? Have you lost the secret of contentment? Are you a boomer and not a sticker? Has the gospel grown cold and dull to you? Then Christian, come to this table and warm yourselves on Christ and what he has done and find contentment in him once again. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to the table now, we ask that you would satisfy us, satisfy our deepest longings. Lord, show us that through suffering, which is what we see at this table, we share with you. Lord, let us once again see that in you we are complete and whole and that through your crucifixion and resurrection it is enough for us. And so to live is as Christ and to die is gain. Lord, build that faith again. Feed that faith again in us now. It's in your name we pray. Amen.